We turn in our Bibles today to Judges and chapter 6. Judges and chapter 6. In our studies off Judges, we've been learning life lessons, common phrases or statements that are in our language. And today we're thinking of the phrase, but for the grace of God. This is a common saying within our language as we view the devastation in Ukraine, the flooding, the war, the people being displaced and troubled in that land. We think of how unimaginable it would be and we might say and others have said, but for the grace of God. That could have been my experience. It could have been yours. And this is a common saying within journalism, within our world, but for the grace of God. It goes back to John Bradford in 1553 as he watched criminals being taken out to their execution. He wrote of them, but for the grace of God, that would have been my experience. Ultimately, the phrase goes back to the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In our studies, uh, we have seen these life lessons and various characters in the book of Judges so far. We have thought of Abimelech, how he reaped what he sowed. He killed the 70 on the stone, and then he was killed by a stone. We have thought of Jephthah and thinking before we speak, offering that rash vow that whatever came out of the door of his house, he would offer to God. Let us think before we speak. Then Samson, we have seen that a crooked stick can draw a straight line. Samson was defective, but Samson has been pointing us to the Lord Jesus. And coming to Gideon, the fourth of the major judges in the book of Judges, we learn in this chapter about the grace of God. There are four ways in which God's grace is seen in, in, in Gideon's and in our experience. Firstly, in verses 1 to 14 of chapter 6, the grace of God in our salvation. The grace of God in our salvation, then in our service, then in our suffering, and then in our slowness in Judges chapter 6. The grace of God in our salvation, verses 1 to 14. There is a continued degeneration within the book of Judges, uh, beginning in chapters 1 and 2 and leading right on to the very end of the book as worse and worse behavior and activity is displayed by God's people possessing the promised land. And so we read this common expression that we find in verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was found in 211, 2.19, 3.7, 3.12, 4.1. Here again, this expression, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In this instance, they have turned to make an altar to Baal. They have set up an Asherah pole for, for a god of the, the Canaanites to worship a false god, another being another false being. In verse number 9 and 10, we we hear an echo of the the opening of the Ten Commandments, not to make any graven image, not to have any other God beside the Lord. 
Here are the people deliberately breaking the opening commands of the Ten Commandments. They have turned once again away from God and they have embraced what is wrong. The gods of the Midianites, the gods of the Amalekites, the gods of the Canaanites have allured them from the living and the true God. And then judges, there is a cycle of the people sinning and then God judging the people. In this instance, the Midianites and the Amalekites, they come and they attack and conquer the people of Israel and have been ruling over them, the text says in verse 1, for seven years. The Midianites were descendant from Abraham uh, through his concubine Keturah, identified in Genesis chapter 25. The Amalekites were lifelong enemies of Israel. They dwelled on the, the eastern side of the River Jordan. They have crossed that river now and they have entered into the land of Israel and they are ruling over the people of Israel, the Amalekites and the Midianites. The people have sinned. God has judged the people. This is the cycle within the book of Judges. The next element of the cycle is that the people cry to God for deliverance. Uh, and this is happening in verse number 6. And in verse number 7, Israel has been brought low. They've been displaced from their towns and their villages. They're living in caves uh, and in the wilderness, as the verses indicate in verse number 2. And now they cry to God. They seek his deliverance. They have sinned. They have been judged. Now they cry to God. Now up until now, in this cycle, the next stage was God would provide a deliverer. Ehud, Othniel, Barak, Deborah. But this time, in verse number 7 to 10, God doesn't initially send a deliverer. He sends a prophet to rebuke them. The nameless prophet comes. This people is not learning their lesson. This people is, is living loosely to the, the experience of repentance, that they're playing on God's love and on his mercy. They've sinned. They've been judged. They've cried for deliverance. And up until now, God has immediately answered their cry for deliverance by sending a savior, by sending a judge. But this time it's different. He sends the nameless prophet to rebuke them for their shallow repentance, for their easy turning away from God and, and embracing the false gods of the Midianites and the Canaanites. And we would say, that serves them right. They've made their bed. Let them lie in it. They're getting what they deserved. No saviour this time. No deliverance this time. Four times already they've sinned and they've been judged and they've cried for deliverance and God has deliverance. Here's this fifth cycle. And they've sinned and they've been judged. They've cried to God for deliverance. But now he sends them a prophet to rebuke them. But that's not all he does. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. 
and sends Gideon to save the people. This is our God, God of infinite grace. Verse 14, he says to Gideon, go in this might of yours and save Israel. The grace of God in our salvation, saving an undeserving people. It was very pleasing for me to see people leaving last week with arms of books uh, under their arms. I, I, I'll not be uh, with piles of books under their arms. I'll not be checking up if you're going to read them or what you're going to do with them, sell them on eBay, whatever you want to do. But one of the books, it was the Memories of Sandfields by Beth and Lloyd-Jones. It's an account of people who were marvelously converted under Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was the minister in Wales. And one, in one of those stories, one of the man who comes to faith, it all began in the local pub. And he heard in the local pub that this new minister in Wales had said from the pulpit that there's no man too bad to be saved. grace of God in our salvation. Israel, they've got it all wrong. Israel has messed up again. Israel is repeatedly sinful, playing on the love and mercy of God. Will he turn his back on them this time? Never. He sends Gideon to save them. Perhaps you're here and you're not yet a Christian. And you're trying to be a Christian. You're trying to earn God's favor. You're trying to get into heaven by your good works. You're hoping that your good will outweigh your bad. Stop trying. Start trusting. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. He has died for our sins. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. It is absolutely free. The grace of God in our salvation. Or maybe you think you're too bad to be a Christian. Maybe you sit here and you think, well, nobody really knows all that I've done in my life. I've kept it from my family. I've kept it from the church family. I've kept it from my work colleagues. No one knows the depths to which I have sunk. I would doubt that you have sunk as low as the people of this chapter. We do have gods in our hearts. Our cars, our golf, our homes, our hobbies. We do have gods in our hearts, but they had stone gods. We do have the passions of lust, the impure thoughts and desires in our hearts, but they were using prostitutes. I would doubt we have sunk as low as the church in the Old Testament here. But God was gracious to them. The grace of God in our salvation. Secondly, the grace of God in our service, and we're moving into verses 15 to 24. It's just incredible how God chooses to use 
human beings who are weak and defective, people like ourselves, the children among us today. This angel of the Lord could have destroyed the Midianites and the Amalekites himself. See the great power this angel has. He touches the rock, and from this rock, fire comes and consumes the sacrifice. What could he not have done to the Amalekites and the Midianites that were congregated against Israel? But instead of the angel taking on these Midianites and Amalekites by himself, he comes and he says to Gideon in verse 14, You go and save Israel. You do it. Rather than the angel going and facing up to the generals of these foreign powers, he says to Gideon, You go and save Israel. This is what our Lord does. He calls us who are weak, us who are reluctant, us who know our defects. He calls us to serve the grace of God in our service. Now Gideon was spiritually weak, wasn't he? It takes him a long time to understand who this angel visiting him really is. He was weak theologically in verse 13. He says, if the Lord is with us, Why then are we being defeated and overrun? Well, the answer obviously is because of the sin of the people of his nation. He was weak theologically. He was weak socially in verse 11 and 15. He says, my clan is the least in the tribe of Manasseh. He was weak militarily. He was hiding in a wine press, threshing corn, not the usual place to thresh corn. Usually it was outside where the wind would blow and take away the chaff. He was weak in very many levels. But God comes and says to Gideon, you go and save Israel. And how can this be? How can he manage and how can you and I manage aware of our weaknesses and defects? How can the children of our church be servants for our Lord and Savior just at the stage that they are at? Verse 16 is the answer. God says, but I will be with you. All the defects, all the weakness, all the inadequacies, theologically, spiritually, socially, militarily, that Gideon evidently has, is more than compensated by the presence and grace and power of the living Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems that's how we're to understand the statement in verse number 12. O mighty man of valor. He was strong because God promises, I will be with you. And this weak, this little known, this defective individual will be able to do great things because of the presence and the power of Jesus. And so it was throughout the history of the church, the fishermen are called to be the disciples of Jesus Mary, a young teenager, is called to be the mother of Jesus. David is called to be a leader of the church from the fields following the sheep. Joseph, the cocky teenager, is chosen and called by God to be the preserver of the people in Israel. 
the grace of God in our service. And all of us feel our weakness with the challenges that come to us in our life. The challenges of exams and choosing our future is there, but God promises us, I will be with you. The challenges of parenting, those decisions that come thick and fast as our children grow up before our eyes. How can we manage? How can we steer them and help them? God promises, I will be with you. The promises of the challenges of caring for loved ones as they grow in increasing weakness. We feel the emotional strain of it, the pull towards them, the inadequacy of our medical training. But God promises, I will be with you. Living on a low income, living with difficult neighbors, living with unsuitable weather for your business, living with loneliness, living with bereavement. How can we manage? We feel our weakness. There is grace for us in the call of God in our life, in the service he's asked us to give. Such is his, his sufficiency for us. Thirdly, grace in our suffering. We have to smile at the, the opening words of verse number 25. That night. You know, here, here's Gideon. You know, he's had this amazing experience of the angel coming, the angel doing this wonder of disappearing in the flame. He's had this sudden call in his life. He was there farming, threshing out the wheat, hiding away. Suddenly, he, he, he's, he's been thrust into the limelight. And he's just, he's just processing all of this in his heart and mind. And then God comes to him in verse 25, that night. He's hardly got time to recover and, and, and let it all sink in that night. And God calls on him to, to do a difficult thing, to, to pull down the, the altar of Baal. And, and that's not so difficult. God instructs him to take two bulls to help him with the demolition, to tying on the, the altar to the back of these bulls would, would make short work of this altar. But the hard thing was, in verse number 25, that this altar was in your father's house. And he knew there would be tension and friction, and difficulty. It was in his father's house. A hard thing to do. And, and he does it at night, not just because he's afraid, but because there would be less people around to stop him doing it. He's going to get the job done, and he chooses the optimum time when he'd be free to do it. And he does it. And God mitigates his suffering. The fallout from this is, is managed by God and, and limited by God in two ways. One is, in, in verse number 26, God tells Gideon to offer the second bull on the altar. And the Reformation Study Bible makes a, a, a big thing of this. Not the first bull, but the second bull. This was for, for breeding within the community. If he'd offered the first bull, the prime bull, then there'd be an absolute outrage within the community. But God mitigates the suffering, the fallout, by him offering the second bull on the altar. And, and the people don't even mention this in their, in their complaints. And the second way God mitigates the suffering is that his father stands up for him. His father supports him. 
His father recognizes the error of his ways and asks Baal to fight his own corner. If Baal is a god, well, Baal can defend himself. Grace in our suffering, called to do a very difficult thing. And God is there to to manage the fallout of it for his young servant. This is a great encouragement for us. Many times we're we're struggling to witness to a neighbor, to a work colleague, and the thing going through our heads is, what are they going to say? If I get round to telling them that they're a sinner on the way to hell and they need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, what are they going to say? What are they going to do to me? Well, look at this. God will be with us in those moments. And in his amazing grace, he might actually turn around the heart of those people whom we thought would be dead against us to support us and promote our position as he did here in Gideon's case. And lastly, grace in our slowness. Putting out the fleece, I think, was wrong. Putting out the fleece is is not a practice for us to follow as Christians. It was a sign of lack of trust and lack of faith. Gideon, underneath, he knows that that he's really pushing it with God. In verse 37 and verse 36, he says, you know, show me that I, I will be the one who will save Israel as you have said. He's got a clear word of God, verse 36, 37. He knows what God has commanded him to do, but he's really weak in his faith. And he asks for this further confirmation beyond the angel, beyond everything else that's happened. He asks for this further confirmation of faith. And God, his absolute grace, gives it to him. Barry Webb comments this episode shows us again the amazing grace of God in making allowance for Gideon's imperfection. It was a common practice in his time of the fleece and the dew. Uh, The the shepherds uh, would put out a a sheep's fleece uh, at night on the rock. The, The dew would soak that and then they would wring that out into vessels which would give them water throughout the rest of the day and Gideon does that first and then he recognizes the commonness of that practice and then asks for the opposite that the fleece would be dry and the ground would be wet perhaps in our life we are slow to in doing the obvious thing the thing God is calling us to do Perhaps there's some form of service which everyone else in the congregation and your family know that you should be doing, but you're dragging your feet. You're reluctant to do this thing. God is gracious in dealing with us and encouraging us and directing us in what he's called us to do. The grace of God in our salvation, in our service, in our suffering, and in our slowness to develop as Christian people. Of all the subjects in the Bible, this is the one 
that you and I should be experts in. It's good to know all the intricacies of creation. Good to think about predestination. Good to be knowledgeable about eschatology. But this is the one that will transform our lives and enable us to serve and to grow for our Savior. Our dispensational brothers miss out on this, don't they? They major on the New Testament. They find the lessons to live the Christian life in the New Testament. The book of Judges is, is set aside by them. Boys and girls, I was interested in reading of a, a book which was borrowed in 1942 in the Second World War. And it's just now been returned to the library in Washington. But it was returned with this note. This book is not worth reading. So <clears throat> it's back on the shelves now. It's been away for a long time. But, but the, the person or the family, whoever had it, thinks, ah, well, you, you haven't missed anything. It's, it's, there's, there's not much to contribute to your life there. Some people think that about judges, but we don't, do we? The phrase used in verse number six, brought very low, is used in Psalm 116, verse five. The psalmist, speaking of his experience, I was brought low, and the Lord heard me. And his experience and our experience of being brought low by conviction of sin, by the mess of our life, which we all get into, is illustrated in this chapter by this people being brought low. But the God of grace, saving them, changing them, loving them. 